Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode. All right, we are recording, and this is the deep dive episode. Today we're talking at Charles Schwab. But first, how are you guys doing today? Ian, down in, uh, I always forget, it's Arizona or California. I'm going to get it right this one time. But <laughs> Yep, down in, down in Phoenix. And it's, you know, we've been talking about the weather a lot, but I do have to mention it's going to get into the 70s next week. So uh, starting to get pretty nice for all you people, you know, up in colder parts of the world. Come, to, come on down to Phoenix, play a little bit of golf, and uh, enjoy some good weather. Wow. That sounds, sounds nice. so bad compared to this Seattle. Yeah. Raining every day. Yeah. Haven't seen the sun in a week, so it's all right though. <laughs> um, but we're not talking about the weather today. We're talking about Charles Schwab. So Ryan, since you do the introduction, do you want to go over what they do and then the history of the company? Yeah. So they are an investment services company with around 6 trillion in client assets. Um, they're the second largest behind Vanguard in terms of AUM. They might be larger now. Um, thanks to the acquisition that they made. And we're probably going to discuss that, but they cover a whole host of different financial services, including wealth management, securities, brokerage, banking, asset management, and financial advisory services. So they used to make a bunch, I mean, they used to be just sort of a traditional brokerage. And so they'd make money on commission. So when stuff was traded, they'd get their fee. If you know anything about the history of stock brokers, that was basically how it worked. They were sort of, one of the ones pushing towards lower commissions over time. And they kept doing that for the longest time. And they've essentially built out a whole bunch of AUM because more and more clients wanted to come to them for their lower fees, which allowed them to get into some adjacent services. So they had Schwab Bank, they have their own ETFs, they had mutual funds, I'm sure they still do. And then they have like a brokerage for funds or brokerage for RIAs kind of thing. They, they have a whole bunch of different products now, um, but they uh, recently basically cut their commissions to zero. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard about this, but for reference in fiscal year 2018, their trading revenue only accounted for 8% of net revenues. So total net revenue. So it's a very small amount. And of the trading revenue, only part of it was from commissions. The rest was from selling order flow, which is a whole nother thing and we'll get into it. But um, yeah, they are much more than just a broker right, for right. anyone that was misunderstanding. And that. they, uh, it was a big move because a lot of the other brokerages, they had their, I mean, Robinhood was already doing commission free, but say like TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, they made like 25% of the revenue off of that. So mm -hmm. Schwab probably said, all right, this is probably a lose-lose, but they're going to lose more than us. Right. Um, 
The history was pretty interesting, though. In 1963, Chuck Schwab and two other partners launched an investment advisory newsletter. So just like the rest of us, Substack. started with the Substack. Yeah. I mean, that's how all great stories are started. Uh, but nearly 10 years later, that company was incorporated in California. And a year after, he bought all the stock of the company from his partners um, and changed the name to Charles Schwab and Company. Uh, then came along May Day. So if you know what May Day is, this is where the commissions for the brokerage industry became deregulated. So they used to be regulated, put there was basically a cap or there was a rate for however much, like if you bought stock, there was a certain commission rate that was regulated by the government. That got deregulated and a lot of brokerage services used it to raise their commissions. Charles Schwab saw that as an opportunity. So he built an office in Seattle. He built out the first world's first 24 hour quotation service. And Schwab eventually became a member of the New York Stock Exchange. And so he was one, he was really one of the first ones that was like, no, you guys are doing this wrong. This isn't the time to mark up commissions, right? Go for the scale play, lower commissions. And that's what he did. Bank of America actually bought them out for 55 million in 1983. Ah. Four years later, Chuck Schwab bought the company back and went public two months after. That's some conviction right there. Yeah, this guy sounds like a legend. Yeah, he's he is he is he's done well. Um, and yeah, that buying that back for fifty five million. I'm gonna go over the valuation later. That's that's <laughs> quite a good investment. But I'll get to the industry and competition. So, like you said, they have three parts of their business: trading revenue, interest revenue, and asset management fees. So they compete on trading and interest revenue with other brokerages like Robinhood, Vanguard, Fidelity, et cetera. Um, and then they offer um, or they compete with banks on these services too, like Ally, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America. You guys know all the names. Uh, and that is basically like, it's really simple. They have cash on the balance sheets that they pay interest out to their clients. And then they also invest that cash in treasuries. And then they net the difference of that. Very simple. A lot of banks and a lot of brokerages do that. They're competing with that. And the main thing to look for is just increasing assets under management and then where interest rates are at because that's yeah. how they make money. Uh, the main competitor for their 401k products would be Fidelity. Um, and they also have IRA products, which gives them a little bit of an advantage versus someone like Robinhood or one of those small apps. But all the classic brokerages do that as well. Uh, the asset management fee part, which is I think about a third or 40% of the business uh, they compete with that uh, with, you know, Fidelity, Vanguard as well. They're not really competing with all the other players like Robinhood or Goldman Sachs or Allied Bank. But for that, they have like RIAs and advisory clients and then robo-advisors and then the ETF and index fund products. Uh, so Schwab doesn't charge people to use their services, which is an advantage I think they have, but they only charge a fee on their investment products. So say you were an advisor and you had a billion in management, but you were using Schwab ETFs or using Schwab's robo-advisory service, that would only be if you were an individual. Um, you don't get charged much for that or anything, but you get charged on those you know, small take rates on those ETFs. And then overall, the industry is quite large. There's about $45 trillion in investable assets. Talk about a TAM right there uh, in the United States alone with you know, basically every competitor is trying to get a slice of each. And Schwab, like you said, is about $6 trillion and that includes the TD acquisition uh, so, you know, they're one of the largest players, but yeah. it's a large, large market. So to really oversimplify it, think of like people think of them as a brokerage and that really is the top of the funnel. So yeah. if you're bringing in money, it's probably for your brokerage services. They don't really make much money 
by people trading stocks. They make a little bit, but a majority of it is from the cash. They have a certain cash reserve ratio or whatever it is from the cash, the float that is in the whole system. And then they invest that in interest bearing assets. Yep. And there's also other ways they have their own ETFs and fees, but the top of the funnel is really just they, ha they have the best brokerage service. Yeah, and they want to get as much assets under management as possible. Uh, Ian, you're going to get to hit the management, but did you have any thoughts on industry or competition or you got it all covered? I think you guys covered it pretty well there. Like you said, it's um, it's an interesting how the industry's changed, you know, from over history as Ryan was getting into and how it's becoming less and less dependent on these actual, you know, commissions on trades and that they've found that just collecting as much, you know, assets under management and, um as many as much cash as they can into their um, ecosystem that that's really how they're trying to monetize. Um, I always find it interesting companies and digging into management teams of companies that are named after a founder um, and with the founder still, still involved in the company. It's kind of a, just because there's this extra weight to it, right. When it actually has, you know, Charles Schwab, the name on the company, there's, there's a personal connection there. And so, um, he was the CEO, you know, as Ryan was mentioning, he started the company, sold it to B of A, bought it back. He, after he bought it back, he was the CEO from then until 2008, when it was turned over to Walter W. Bettinger, um, the second, who is the current CEO and has been since 2008. So he's on about a 12 year tenure now. Um, Bettinger actually joined the company in 1995 when he started, so Bettinger, he started his own company. It was a real retirement plan services company that was bought by Schwab in 1995. Hmm. That's when he became part of the company, worked his way up, was COO at one point, um, directly before becoming CEO. And so he's kind of, I like this transition because it's interesting how it goes from, you know, a founder CEO to someone who was a founder CEO worked in the corporate world of Schwab for a while and then became the CEO of the company. And so he has a little bit of that founder mentality. Um, and while also having a lot of just deep experience over 25 um, years of experience at Schwab now. So um, it seems like it's been a good transition. Oftentimes after you have a long, a long-term founder CEO like Charles Schwab, it, it's tough to actually find a successor who then sticks around for a long time. So it's kind of a rare and it's a mark of success that um, Bettinger was able to do that. And then also that he did that coming out of the financial crisis. Um, there was a lot kind of going around right when he was um, becoming CEO right out of you know the 2007 and he became CEO in 2008. So very tumultuous time and he was still able to stick with the company and, and be there for the last 12 years and really kind of guide it in its next step forward. Um, turning to uh, Charles Schwab a little bit to Chuck himself, He's still the chairman of the board. Um, like I said, he served from CEO as CEO from 1986 to 2008 and continues to provide a lot of vision that drives the company's growth. He's always been about more transparency, lower fees, less commissions. Um, and that continues to kind of be a big part of the company today. He owns about 7% of all shares outstanding and the management team in total owns about 10% of the company. And then as you know, an established kind of large financial institution. It is um, held by many funds and investment managers. Um, they make up, it's a lot of institutional investors that invest in Schwab just because it's a fairly steady company. Um, and it's a, it's a major part of the economy. 
Right. It feels a little bit, and this may be a weird comparison, like Nintendo, where they want to have a CEO in for a few decades, not just someone that's going to be in a transition period for three years, um, which is yeah. quite common um, in at least the United States. So. Yeah, highly selective, it feels like. Yeah. Like they probably knew he was going to be CEO for some time, and he just they waited to sort of let him take over the role. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who takes over the chairman role. Um, it may not be for a decade or so, but that transition period, you know, Charles Schwab is going to have to leave eventually. Um, all right, next up is the valuation. So I'm going to go through it quick. There's not much here since they're, you know, a bank. You kind of only look at a few things um, and you can kind of treat them like a bank with that interest um, stuff. That's how they really make their money. Uh, so the ticker is SCHW price is $39.48. As of today, which is October 20th, 2020, when we're recording, uh, the market cap is $66.1 billion. And you don't want to use an enterprise value for these companies because the debt, it's not like corporate debt. It's a lot of debt from interest-bearing stuff and getting out loans from, you know, taking out loans from mortgage-backed securities and bonds and stuff like that. So right. it really gets, it's not the right way to do it. It actually says, if you calculate it correctly, that they have a negative enterprise value, which you know, obviously isn't right. Um, their last 12 month PE is 18. Uh, so pretty low on that end dividend yield 1.8%. And like I said before, it's hard to peg them down on evaluation. You really look at the balance sheet, which is what Ian is going to go through and the interest rates, you look at that and then total AUM. That's kind of what's going to drive growth. Yeah. And I'll dig into the earnings. So the financials at first glance, are somewhat difficult to digest because there's so much going on and it's so susceptible to macro factors because interest rates matter. And then how the market itself is doing kind of matters because their client assets, their assets under management goes yeah. up a lot. If a lot of that is invested in the S and P 500, that's true. They can't control that really. So, so their total client assets, this was before the TD Ameritrade acquisition was 4.4 trillion. That was up 17% year over year. It's now over probably six trillion. That's what they put on their website. Um, total net revenue for the third quarter was down 10% year over year to 2.4 billion. The reason for that was because I think it's 60%. I might be misquoting that. 60% of their revenue comes from interest yeah. on the float in the system. And that, that interest that they're gaining on that float is going to be lower when interest rates decrease, which they have. So it's obviously not a favorable environment for them when interest rates decline, um, but it's the same across the industry. So the competition, it's all the same. Yeah. Um, and then income before taxes was 889 million. That was down 28% year over year. Net income was 698 million, down around 27% year over year as well. So EBIT margins were 36% versus 46% last year. That all looks really bad because there was a large increase in expenses for the quarter that were all primarily related to the acquisition of TD Ameritrade. A lot of them got categorized as professional services expenses. And you can expect that a lot of those costs, keep in mind, this was a $26 billion acquisition. It was sto a stock deal, All right? stock deal. Yeah. There's, but there's also going, they said that they're going to have, they're going to expect 1.6 billion in integration spending after closing the deal. Think about it. There's going to be a lot of lawyers involved, a lot of yeah. extra expenses just to make this deal happen and close. So 
the profits are going to be, the margins in general are going to be sort of random. I imagine it's going to be a little less predictable than most people would hope. So Mm -hmm. that's what you're seeing with their most recent quarterly financials. Yeah. It's not a recurring revenue business model, but you'd hope that the assets under management are going to be steady over time. Yeah. Uh, Ian, what do you have for balance sheet? Yeah. So I always like to start with cash. They've got about $34 million in unrestricted cash. They've got about $30 million in restricted cash. That's, is, that, um, sure that's, is that $34 billion? $34 billion, my bad. Okay. <laughs> yes, well, I was going to say, that's a little small. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it would have been very concerning if we were at $34 million. That's, uh, <laughs> that's on me. Um, yes, $34 billion in cash. And so plenty of cash. Um, they are, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a super cash intensive business, except when they want to, want to grow and, you know, fund, you know, different types of, you know, it's not really a cash intensive business. It's they have all the cash because they can earn the interest on it. So, um, which comes partly from those accounts that they have partly from their own cash balance. Um, and some of that restricted cash amount before this TD Ameritrade deal, they have hardly any goodwill, goodwill to speak of. And so once this acquisition is finalized and reflected on the financials, I assume we'll see a little bit of an uptick in goodwill, but it should not be anything that's too concerning. Um, they only paid, I think, you know, depending on how you calculate it, they paid somewhere between a 20 and a 30% premium on TD Ameritrade. So we will see a little bit of um, goodwill, but with, you know, oh, go, go ahead, Ryan. And, and I was going to say, and that was after they had announced the commission free. So TD yeah. Ameritrade stock, Right. And obviously declined because they knew they were going to have to compete. So it was a 30% markup of the declined value, which probably was less than the original value to begin with. Yes, exactly. But yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah no, that's exactly right. It was, it was very strategic buying by Schwab. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, like these financial statements can get a little bit complex and um, look somewhat similar to banks. Um, some, if for people who are familiar with looking at bank balance sheets, um, it's just trading at a little bit over two times book value, which doesn't seem compared to some of the other ones in the industry seems to be a fairly reasonable valuation. Um, for me, there's no red flags on the balance sheet. That's generally what I'm looking for when I'm looking at a balance sheet is, is there anything here that's catching my eye and making me worried about the health of the business or the health, you know, if things were to take a downturn, what it would mean for the business, they're earning plenty of money have cash to fund any growth and um, only about $8 million in long or $8 billion in long-term debt. So um, nothing, nothing too concerning there. And we are typically not a price to earnings. We're not really fond of the metric typically because it can be sort of random, you know, market cap isn't always perfect. Sometimes we prefer enterprise value. Earnings aren't always perfect, but it feels like price to earnings is actually sort of relevant for yeah. this business. Like it's a, a somewhat decent metric, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Cause the business is so simple. They're not going to be able to manipulate earnings too much, except, you know, maybe with the acquisition of TD, right. but that's a one-time thing. Uh, yeah. And that, if the business is so simple that you're not looking at the balance sheet and the valuation, it's just tough. There's only a few things you got to look at. Yeah. And the, the last thing I'd say about that is that it also isn't growing at a crazy rate. And so the price mm-hmm. to earnings ratio is something that you can look at and say, this is a mature business. You know, they're going to grow a little bit each year, but it's really going to be based on their valuation and the price of the stock is really going to be based on what people are willing to pay for each dollar of earnings. 
Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we're going to hit the second half here after a few ads. And I'm excited to talk about that because there's a lot of future growth opportunities for Schwab and the industry is quite dynamic right now. So let's get to it. And then back to the second half of the show. All right, welcome back. First up is competitive advantages. Who wants to go first? Ryan, seem eager to talk. Sure. So the diverse revenue streams was and will continue to be a competitive advantage because this is why they were able to, and if anyone paid attention to the deal that happened, they they cut commissions to 0% because they were able to. TD Ameritrade and all the other brokerages had to follow suit because they can't compete if they don't lower the commissions as well. It kind of happens all at once, but that, that made up much more of the other company's revenue than it did for Schwab. So they were basically, I think I've used this metaphor before, but they shot themselves in the shoulder to hit their competitors in the heart kind of thing. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? That makes, that makes sense. They, yeah. And it worked perfectly and that's going to expand their, that's going to further expand their assets and over time will expand their revenue because of interest, you know, the interest on their assets. So if they can have revenue from all these different areas, they're way less susceptible to a harmful, like a one-time event like TD Ameritrade had to face as soon as Schwab cut their commissions. No, that makes sense. And it's just something that it's a really strong competitive advantage because you have to get to that scale before you can use it. You can't just do that by intuition or, you know, innovation or kind of disrupting something. All right. Uh, Ian, what do you got? Yeah. So I'm going to talk about their, their branding, their good name, um, which is kind of ironic since it's actually the founder's name, but you know, they just have this people trust Schwab. Um, they had the very popular talk to Chuck ad campaign in the early two thousands. Um, it's not Robin hood, right? People, <laughs> people just have more of a trust for Schwab and it tends to be they're able, they've developed into this thing where people take them seriously and they also trust them. And it's not like, um, you know, it's not like from years past, like Scott trade or even E-Trade today, like with just kind of scammy marketing or like stuff that's kind of like jumping out at you real fast. They're just a steady kind of, it's the type of place that provides a little bit of security. You, you trust them with your money. Um, they have a wide range of services, like Ryan was mentioning that helps with revenue, but also helps just People like on Robinhood, for instance, you can't start a Roth IRA, right? Mm, right. With Schwab, you can trust my whole entire financial picture can be here. And I can just trust that it's going to be safe and I don't have to worry about it. And I don't have to have accounts here, there, and the other place. It can just all be focused on this one stop shop. And yeah, to follow on that, the 
if someone were to say, okay, this order flow stuff has to stop and it got regulated or something and people said it can't happen anymore, Robinhood and maybe some other companies are screwed. Because of the diverse revenue streams that Schwab has, they'd be fine. It, yeah. it only makes up like 6% of their top line. Yeah, that's exactly true. And with that customer service too that you're talking about and having the comprehensive things, if you're on Robinhood, you can't talk to a person, but when you're on Schwab, um, and I've noticed this because I've used both of the products, Schwab, you can talk to either on the phone or through a message um, just on their website with anyone and you can get them within like two minutes and it's a real person. So Right. Yeah. And just to give a little bit of advice or not advice, but a little bit of insight into that, I actually just transferred over. I had a small Robinhood account and transferred over um, my money to Schwab this past week. I had just a little tiny snafu with it and um, called, you know, called someone up on Schwab and said, Hey, I got this extra charge. I wasn't expecting. They said, no problem. We'll take care of it right now. Before I was off the phone, they already had the charge reversed and everything, you know, I just checked today and everything's looking great. So um, I've been a Schwab customer for since I started investing and decided I don't want to have extra money sitting over in Robinhood. I'm going to move it over to Schwab. And it was a really easy process. Right. And there's that, uh, there was that recent story where people had their money stolen and they couldn't contact Robinhood for two weeks. Um, I think that's a benefit for Schwab, Uh, but I'll get into my competitive advantage. It's a little similar to Ryan's. So I think that economies of scale also help them you know, enable that reverse pricing power as you maybe want to say where they can lower prices more sustainably. And that can help compete with Wealthfront and Betterment, which are the two big startup robo advisory services. So those places have to charge a little more because their only product is robo advisory. But with Schwab, they've been able to scale up one because they already have a bunch of clients under management and two, because they can charge a cheaper price. Um, And that's really simple, but I think that's another way they can compete um, strongly with anyone that's trying to compete. Sorry, I said compete twice, but you know, they'll be able to outlast their competitors that way. What's your uh, future growth opportunity? Um, all right. Well, I said the robo advisory service for this too. guess I was just staying with the same stuff here. So if you're a regular investor, it takes as little as $5,000 and it has no advisory or commission fees and you only pay money on the ETFs they invest in. So the way Schwab makes money with this is say you're using the broad market ETF, they take three basis points. You're gonna pay a little bit on that like you would in a regular account. And then they're also gonna have some cash in money market funds that they'll make uh, money on where just like in the traditional account where if you have cash, they pay you a tiny bit of interest, but they're also investing that cash in higher interest bearing um, securities, And right? For anyone that doesn't know, what's the robo advisors? Oh, okay. So yeah, I guess that we should do a quick explainer on that. So instead of having a human financial advisor, they run the portfolio and then automatically rebalance it. So for example, if you wanted a simple, like 50 in stocks, 40 in bonds, 10% in cash, and then whatever diversification you wanted, um, they could set up the ETFs for you for that. And then every month or quarter, however you set it up, they rebalance it for you and it's automated. So you don't have to spend any time on it. But with Schwab, you also don't have to pay any extra fees. So someone like Betterment or Wealthfront, I think they charge like 0.25%, um, which, you know, that adds up over time. Yeah. Um, I'll get to mine. I think security-focused marketing campaigns is probably a good use of money. And the reason I say that is because at this point, individual investors that are younger have essentially one of two choice. They have two options, really. And it's Robinhood or one of those brokerages that feel a little scammy that sells your order flow and it has a nice pretty user interface 
or the Schwab TD Ameritrade. And I think over time, it's really going to be just Schwab is probably going to be one of the only options other than maybe your Vanguard or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the point is they have, Robinhood has basically destroyed their own business. Obviously their private valuation has been great, which is irrelevant, but they, they're going to push customers and clients away because we've seen it time and time again, because they've tried so hard to democratize it. They've essentially gamified it. And now they've made basically royal screw-ups that they can't, they, they, yeah. you can't do that. That's like the one rule that you can't have, whether it's unlimited uh, margin or- Infinite leverage. It's a good inf- tactic, right? Infinite no. <laughs> leverage or you know, clients losing their money, getting hacked, uh, allowing people to trade options when you shouldn't. I think if Charles Schwab basically acts as the shoulder to cry on when these customers inevitably get pissed, like that's a good place to be. Yeah. And, oh, that's totally true. And the thing is people get worried because Robinhood touts how many customers have accounts downloaded and Ian just, you know, he counts as a user, but you have no money over there. We've discussed before how um, the three of us here don't have any money on our Robinhood accounts. It's- and I think it's telling that Robinhood does not brag about their AUM. They only brag about their users when in reality, it only matters what AUM you have. It serves as a pretty watch list but that's yeah. all I use it for. And that makes no money for Robinhood. So I think people are concerned about that for investing in Schwab, but reality, the one thing you got to watch out for is AUM because you'd rather have a few whales coming in with a million dollars in their retirement accounts than like a guy with a thousand bucks trading options. Um, not to, not that we're, uh, <laughs> well, that's yeah. us, that's us, but you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ian, what yeah, about Ian, you? Yeah. yeah, so just to touch briefly on that Robinhood conversation too, um, you know, I think to, to give the counterpoint and the Robinhood pro point, right. We might say Robinhood would say, well, we care about users because the users are going to grow the amount of money they invest with us over time. We have young people like the, like lemonade that we were talking about last week, you know, as these people get older, they're going to use more and more of our services. The problem is Robinhood hasn't really shown that they're going to, you know, expand out to some of these other investment products that people need and want as they get older with, you know, IRAs custodial accounts, things of that nature. And so um, they're not really capturing that market and it forces users who do want to kind of start investing with some more um, kind of complex kind of account types like that, that they have to move to something like Schwab. Um, so that being said, I, I generally agree with Brian that Schwab should be focused on attracting young investors. Um, and I think security focused marketing is a really interesting way to go about that. I do think, however, that Schwab should spend some money trying to develop a better UI and maybe even an entirely separate product for younger investors, because I think Schwab has a lot to offer. And Robinhood is the shiny thing that's attracting everybody right now. If you can create something that's also shiny, but actually has some backbone behind it and isn't gamified, Schwab has a lot of great resources for learning. But if you try and find them on your on their website, it's almost impossible to find them. And they're like, you know, they look dated, they look like they're from the 2000s. They don't, you know, they're not modern, easy for young investors to grab a hold of. And I think that Schwab really owes it to young investors to, to make something that's attractive to them and gets them into, you know, a more reputable um, broker than something like Robinhood. And I think they're just missing out on some of that because of because their user interface is a little bit dated. No, I agree. I agree. Um, they could definitely improve that website layout. It is confusing. 
uh, but it doesn't mean that they provide a bad service or anything. But like when you look at it, you're like, oh, is this from 2013? Uh, but all right, the last segment we have here is highlights and lowlights. Ryan, I'll let you go first. Okay, so my highlight here is that they are coming off one of maybe, if not the most brilliant business moves, most strategic business moves I've seen ever. Oh, yeah, maybe. I mean, at least the last few years. Yeah, it was really well done. I'm sure Walt Bettinger is feeling like the king right now because it was, (laughs) I mean, it played out perfectly if you think about it. Like, they cut commissions. Everyone else did. Their stock got cut by, like, 3%. Other stocks got cut by 30%, and then they bought one. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it just... It played out really well, and I think the willingness to cannibalize your own business so that you can gobble up competitors is a testament to the management they have. I mean, it was a baller move, and I think it's a good sign of the current management in general. However, low lights, it's going to be lumpy from here on out. $26 billion in an all-stock deal is going to have some impacts on the balance sheet and also just cost in general being able to integrate that so but over time you'd hope that there will be cost synergies right. i know we hate that uh, word synergies but you would hope that their you know their yeah. margin over time um will you know improve they'll be able to expand it with the yeah. combination but you know it's just lack of predictability because of this big deal that's going on also the susceptibility to big macro swings so assets can go down with the market in- revenue can decline 10 percent in a low interest environment that is a big concern. That has that is definitely a potential low light. How much lower can interest rates go? Not much. Hard, I mean, they can, say. can they go negative? I guess that's really the only question we have. Yeah, and that it, that does matter. So you kind of got to be able to dig into the macro to own a business like this. Um, Ian, what do you have? Yeah. So some of my highlights are like we've mentioned this entire episode, the diversified revenue streams just gives them so much more flexibility and making some of those strategic moves like buying TD Ameritrade um, gives them just a great competitive advantage. Um, I'd say they also, we haven't really touched on this yet today, but there's some switching costs involved for users, right? You don't really want to, you know, if you've got a million dollars with Schwab, you're not really going to want to have to figure out how to move that to another broker, right? You can you can do it, but you kind of get familiar with the tools, you get familiar with the way your statements look, all that type of stuff. And it's just, people don't often switch brokers. There's also like literally a 15% switching cost because there's in, I mean, you can trade your account. That's a really painful process, but more than likely you have to sell your securities and transfer the money and you have to pay capital gains tax on that money. Or it takes a long process to have it switched over. You know what yeah. I mean? Like have them do it for you. And that that's just another step. Right. Right. They make it, you know, for the, <laughs> it's funny because on this, you know, in this business, like everything with Robinhood, when I'm trying to switch over my account from Robinhood to Schwab, they were making it as slow as possible, right? Schwab on the other side, who's receiving the money is trying to make it as fast as possible. And so you've got this interesting dynamic that goes on, but it creates a little bit of a headache um, for consumers trying to switch accounts a lot of times. So that's, that's a highlight for Schwab with all the assets under management they already have. Um, A couple of my lowlights, it really centers around this idea that they're not super innovative. Um, they've kind of been innovative in this idea of driving down costs, but in terms of their technology or the types of products that they roll out, the types of tools they have, people for years I know have preferred TD Ameritrade's tools and trading tools to Schwab's. So it's kind of nice to see them actually buying TD Ameritrade and bringing that in-house. But um, there's just some, they don't have a culture of building these great trading tools or building um, 
impressive user interfaces. And so it's not, you know, it's not a deal breaker, but it's something it would be nice to see if they took a little bit more of an innovative approach. But as Ryan has mentioned, um, sometimes you sacrifice a bit of innovation to be known as the place where you can be secure and you can trust. Yeah, it seems like they're really good at coming up with business models to crush competitors, but they're not good at showing it to the customers. Yeah. Right? Because that seems like it's summing up the whole thing here. Yeah, they're not. They're, their business model is equipped to ruin everyone else, but not help themselves. Yeah. So they got to get that other side of the equation going. All right, I'll finish up with my highlights. They have a strong history of ROE, which is return on equity. And typically, we don't like to look at that. Uh, but for a bank, it is really important. So it's just kind of the return on that equity portion of the balance sheet, I think. Um, I'm not an expert on that, but it is strong. It's been all double digits um, for a sustained period here. And, you know, they don't need interest rates to rise to survive. Um, they're not dependent on interest rates. It's not existential to them, but it would be nice, you know, if interest rates rise to 4 to 5% because there's a ton of inflation in the next five years. That would be a huge benefit to Schwab. Um, they have economies of scale uh, that they can offer the lower price products. And that's a giant moat. I mean, I would say Schwab has one of the biggest moats, right? Like yeah. one of like, or at least strongest, easily defended, right? Against the yeah, competition. I'd agree. And there's also like, okay, interest bearing uh, float provides them 50% of their revenue, but whether it's in cash or whether it's in stocks, if you're buying their ETFs, they're still making money one yeah. way or the other. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's a sort of a double-edged sword in that sense. Yeah, that's true. All right. And then my lowlights, um, you know, the profitability is controlled by interest rates and that's out of their control. So that's just tough because when you invest in them, there could be something random that happens that causes interest rates to either skyrocket or go even worse than they are now. And, the, the, you know, Schwab can't control that even if they're running a solid business here. And then I think they did move too slowly to go commission-free. Um, slight red flag there because they probably should have done that three years ago and killed Robin Hood in the crib, but it seemed to work out in the end. Yeah. So, all right. Last question, the wrap up one, are you guys more or less interested in Schwab after today? Ian, uh, you want to go first? Yeah, I can start. I'd say <laughs> I kind of went back and forth. I think if any, <laughs> maybe I'll say I'm exactly as interested as I was. Okay. Um, I was, it's, um, there's things about the business that are intriguing and to get the top dog and really the person, the, the company that has this trust behind it and the company that is, it, it, it's hard to imagine a world without Schwab in it, right? It's going to be around. Presumably it's going to continue to be successful for many years because of that, those assets under management that they have. Um, but there's not, there's not enough um, compelling growth in the future for me to say, need to go after this. There could be some potential value here with the TD Ameritrade value, uh, acquisition and people being a little bit worried or, you know, a little bit scared off by it. And so there could be some, if it goes successful, I assume that um, it'll create some value for Schwab, but um, yeah, it's just, it's not something I can get super, super excited about. Yeah. yeah Ryan. Um, I'm more excited. Uh, the investors podcast had RF Kareem on. Who we had on before. We have had him on before. In the spring. And he talked about it a lot and he had a pretty convincing argument um, just around Schwab as a whole. And it really is an industry leading company um, that is basically going to be the beneficiary of a lot of consolidation, I imagine. Um, and they're right there to capture it. Is it growing super fast? No. Are they susceptible to things that are out of their control? That is something I really don't like to see usually is the 
they have no real real ability to dictate their own growth. It's basically they're reliant on some outside factors. Or at least for half of their revenue. Right. Um, and so that that is um, unfortunate, but yeah, generally still still a fan of the business and it's priced pretty cheaply. Yeah, I would say, yeah. I mean, I agree with all those. I say I'm more interested, but I'm not pounding the table on Schwab. It seems very safe. Um, the floor is high. It probably has one of the highest floors of any business, especially if they continue to just grow AUM at about 50 billion a year or even less. As long as they're not losing AUM, it should be fine. But this won't be a 10 bagger in five years. It probably will you know, give you some dividends. Um, it's going to provide some value. They're going to have steady earnings as long as interest rates don't go crazy. Uh, but this isn't, I don't know, you don't get too excited with Schwab and maybe that's what keeps people away and it's going to end up being a good investment, especially, I mean, the one thing that does get me excited is that Robinhood is, I think investors think that people our age love Robinhood, but we kind of know that it's, it's not really that way. It's really for the people that want to gamble with their money to use Robinhood. But if you're actually going to be an investor and have a strong lifetime value to Schwab, uh, I mean, I'm going to probably stick with them for my Roth IRA for the next 40 years. I mean, that's very valuable. So yeah. I don't know. I have those two things conflicting in my head, and I think both of you guys do as well. Any yeah. closing thoughts or are we good? I'm good. Good, Ian? Yep. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. You can follow Ian at iangraylive.substack or is it .com or? .com. I com okay um and then you can follow us on twitter at chit chat money give us any suggestions on shows to do uh remember we are not financial advisors anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation thank you all for listening we'll see you on our next episode